All right. Today we're going to be uh, we're going to start chapter ten in Revelation, and I I just absolutely love these middle chapters of Revelation. There is a ton of really good stuff here. So many aspects and concepts that speak to exactly what we're dealing with in our everyday lives today and provide us helpful instruction. But before we jump into our section of verses for today, I want to provide us a bit of context that will hopefully help us in our understanding. So over the last number of weeks, we talked explicitly about or referenced the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And the seventh one of each of these provides a climactic consummation that is describing events that we would think of as end of the world or apocalyptic events. And what we find with each of these seals and trumpets and later on in our series bowls will also be included in uh, these groupings is that we get to the six of each kind and then there's kind of a reprieve. There's a description of events that are occur- uh, occurring between the sixth and the seventh of each kind. Last week, we talked about the sixth trumpet in which we read of one third of mankind being killed. It was clearly not the end though as people were given an opportunity to turn towards God and turn away from their sin. Today, we are reading part of the insertion between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. The idea is great suffering and tragedies have befallen the earth. Death is rampant. Wars and famine, plagues are common. And if we look around our world today, we would say this is our reality today. But the final climactic events surrounding Jesus' return are not happening in this moment. I mean, not this moment, right? Jesus' return is imminent. It could happen at any time, but we are in this moment uh, at this point in time where people still have an opportunity to turn towards Jesus, to repent of their sin, to turn away from sin, and to turn towards Jesus. And so we come now to chapter 10, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So let me read chapter 10 here, and then we will work through it. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll 
And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray. God, thank you for these fascinating verses, which maybe to many of us seem really confusing right now. But I pray that in these moments, you would help us to understand your truth. Pray that our hearts would be sensitive to what you want to do in us in these moments. God, I pray that you would help these verses to preach to us so that we would see Jesus for who he really is. That we would get to a point where we would not just want strength or pray for strength, but that our hope would be that Jesus would be our strength. God, that we would not be a people that just want hope or peace, but we would understand and desire for Jesus to be our hope and our peace. So God, come now. Do your work in your ways and in your time. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, let's jump into these intriguing verses. We first read of this angel, and some have been convinced that this angel is actually Jesus. And admittedly, there are many aspects suggesting this could be true, that this could be Jesus. He, his coming on the clouds is similar to when the prophet Daniel saw one coming, or saw coming one like a son of man. So we read about that in the Old Testament book of Daniel. The rainbow sounds like the one who, as we've read previously in Revelation, the one who is seated on the throne. The description, his face was like the sun, sounds just like the description of Jesus given to us in chapter 1. His voice, as it roars, resembles Jesus as the Lion of Judah. Now, despite all of these uh, possibilities that might indicate it is Jesus. It's best to view this angel as one who is not Jesus, but one who is marked by Jesus, or as one who bears the image of the one who is providing him his marching orders. And because of his nearness to Jesus, and because Jesus has shaped him and empowered him, he is described as a mighty angel. And so then, the work that this angel has to do is vital work. It is Jesus' work that he is setting about to do. Now, this angel, it says, had a little scroll open in his hand. And this, this scroll becomes the focal point of this section. Uh, but we're going to push that off for right now, and we'll come back to this scroll in just a little bit. First, though, I want to spend some time in verses 4 and 5, because... There's a fascinating exchange here. It says here, When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. What is the meaning of this? There are things in this world that we are not meant to fully understand. This is God's design for us. 
There are things that God does not want us to know. The Bible is a book that has been orchestrated by the divine will of God. It is God's revelation to us. And there are tons of things we can learn about God. And one of them is that he does not want us to know everything. There are some parts of our lived experience that we are not meant to fully understand. There are parts of theology that we will not know, but we do know enough to be saved. What God does reveal to us is his goodness and his trustworthiness. Now, this idea is not just a one-off idea. We read about this in other parts of the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So clearly there are things that are revealed. Clearly there are things that are secret to God himself. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now I know in part, then I shall know, know fully. So here and now there are things that we know, we understand, but oftentimes it's we see and understand them dimly. But in the future, there's a future time when we will know and understand those things fully. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. God is far beyond us in every way. The, the Bible also talks about just the mystery of God. There are mysteries that God has that he knows. We'll touch on this in just a little bit as well. Now, understanding this reality, how does this strike you? How do you interact with the mystery of God? This fact that there are things that God designs for you to not know. For some of us, hopefully, the fact that there are things God does not want us to know is freeing, or it can comfort us in certain ways. It allows us to just kind of leave some things in God's hands. But when my best friend this past year was told at 41 years of age that he had cancer and that his prognosis was not good at all, there was nothing he or I, his family, could do with that. There are no answers to that reality. We can't sit down and say, this is how this makes perfect sense. And so part of us, we just have to leave this in God's hands and trust him to be and to do what he has revealed himself to be and do, to be good. Now, hopefully there is an aspect that this can comfort us, that there are things that we don't know. But for many of us, I'm guessing we feel a struggle in ourselves. We want to know. We want to know things. We oftentimes feel like we deserve to know. For us to not to know, for us to not know is an injustice, is what we oftentimes will feel. And not knowing creates a loss of control. It, it cause us, causes us to ask the question, why? It fosters uncertainty in our spirit. But this reality, though it may be a difficult truth for us to embrace, is for our good. Us not knowing is for our good. It beckons us to humility. 
In our culture, where it's a weakness to say, I don't know, God is saying it's okay. It's okay for us to say, I don't know, or I don't understand. There is freedom in not feeling the weight to know all things. Now, there are things we can know about God, things we can know about his plan, things we should understand about his will. And we should work really hard to know God deeply. We should push for knowledge where God has revealed it. But we can also be okay when things have not been revealed, when things are not known. The pursuit of knowledge oftentimes morphs into this attempt by us to play God. Limiting our knowledge is good for our faith. It's for our good. Think biblically, okay? We could come up with tons of examples. The Tower of Babel. So back at the beginning of the Bible, people thought, oh, we'll become like God. So we're going to build this tower up to the heavens. And God says that's not good. So he confused them. He dispersed them. The Pharisees in the New Testament were known for their knowledge. No one could rival them in terms of how they knew the Bible. Like if we sat with Pharisees, they would put us to shame as they recited books of the Bible. And yet, so much of their knowledge was futile. It led them away from Jesus instead of towards Jesus. I think about this with my kids as well. I will tell my kids to do something, and they'll ask, why? And my response will oftentimes uh, be dictated by the tone of the question, why? Like, are you examining me, or do you really just want to, to understand here, but it's great if my kids want to know, they want to understand, but there are other times I just want them to learn, to hear what I'm saying, and to obey, to trust me that what I'm saying is for their good, this idea of trusting and obeying, which is a very strong biblical idea. So here's a gospel truth or idea for us in this. When we emphasize knowledge too much in our own lives, it can be an indication that we place too much emphasis on our works and not on faith. If we lack knowledge, then we think we must need to work harder to acquire that knowledge. This could be an indication that we don't understand grace or we're not believing the gospel in the way that Jesus intended. Grace is a gift. It's given to us freely. Now, grace will compel hard work in knowing and understanding God, but it will also call us to rest, to say, I don't know. Grace leads us into freedom and into joy. A dependence on knowledge, on accumulating knowledge, will oftentimes correlate to a deficit in gospel reliance. So understanding the gospel, understanding the grace, the message of grace that's involved in the gospel will lead us to rest in Jesus. As we consider the idea that there are things God does not want us to know, we may feel that way about much of Revelation and all of its symbolism. But even in these verses, there are many things we can know 
about God and what's going on here. We're provided this image of a strong angel who looks like God, but is not God. He is a divine image bearer. We see, we see divine power as the angel is shown as having authority over all things, as he has one foot on land and one foot on the seas. He's ruling over all things. The seven thunders symbolize God's divine wrath on sin. Verse six speaks of no more delay, which conveys the idea that God has been unthinkably patient towards humanity, but we're now reaching that point where there will be no more delay as it pertains to God's wrath. We even can know some of the mystery of God when we look throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10 say, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is part of God's mysterious design and plan for humanity is that he is going to unite all things in himself. He is the meeting point, the unifying factor now, maybe some of these things that I've said about uh, Revelation 10, maybe this is obvious to you, maybe it's straightforward, but what I want to do now is just focus on the scroll, because it's, uh, it's a fascinating read. So the, the way that I want to spend the remainder of our time is I want to answer four questions. I want to answer, what is the scroll? Why is John eating the scroll? Why is the scroll both bitter and sweet? And then what is John, as well as us, ultimately called to do in this? So let's start. What is the scroll? Initially, we need to refer back to Revelation 5 and the scroll that no one was able to open except the Lion of the tribe of Judah or Jesus. So remember, Jesus takes the scroll and he begins to take seals off of of the scroll and things just start happening on earth. We talked about birth pains and warnings and these many judgments that are occurring. There are calls for people to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn towards Jesus, to trust in Jesus. This is the scroll John is seeing here. And then we can also link what's happening in Revelation 10 with the Old Testament book of Daniel 12 or Old Testament book of Daniel, but specifically 12.4. So we read here, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So Daniel was a prophet of God who was given a vision and he wrote it down. And similar to John here in Revelation, he is being called to seal up the words of the book until the time of the end. Now, earlier in Revelation, we talked about how we are in the last days. We are in the last days here and now. So the book of Hebrews talks about this. So from when Jesus resurrected, went to heaven, we are now in those last days. Jesus' return is imminent. And so Essentially, what we're talking about here with the scrolls, the scroll given to John is the word of God. But when we boil down the word of God, when we, the, kind of the focal point of God's word is the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. So that is what 
the scroll is. Now, why is John eating the scroll? This is weird, right? I mean, if someone gave me a scroll, I would not eat it. I would read it or at least try to read it. But this is not a new idea biblically. So Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel, some of you probably know this story, was told by God to eat this scroll. Okay, so he was called as God's prophet to eat a scroll, and then he was going to go out and he was going to share what was in the scroll with other people. But this idea of God's word and people eating it is common throughout the Bible. So Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then Matthew 4, 4 says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And to tie this together, then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So as we put all of these verses together and this idea together, John is eating the scroll to symbolize the importance of knowing the word of God and believing the gospel. It is like we are ingesting God's word. We're consuming it in the same way we are ensuring that we eat food every day to fill our physical stomachs. God calls his people to feast on his word, to read it with urgency, knowing, believing our very lives depend upon it, and to do it regularly so that it is shaping us, because food shapes us, right? Whatever kinds of food we eat, it's going to shape us in certain ways. When I was young, I could eat anything that I wanted. Now I drink kale smoothies and eat celery, right? Just so I don't get a stomachache. And so kids, in your days of youth, enjoy that you can eat whatever you want. Because it won't always, yeah, that's right. It won't always be that way. So the call here for us, as we get this picture of John, is that we're called to ingest the gospel, to eat it, consume it, make it part of us. All right, then, why is the gospel depicted here as both bitter and sweet? And the reason is because the gospel is a word that is simultaneously both bitter and sweet. It has both aspects to it. So let me read some verses here uh, to demonstrate this. Let's start with the sweet side of things. Isaiah 55 says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is speaking to the fact that that which will satisfy us, that which will cause our souls to live are God's word. And we have this kind of this allusion to gospel, the gospel grace here as it begins. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. When we come to the gospel, we've got nothing to bring. It's Jesus pursuing us, him being gracious towards us. 
him giving us that which will ultimately satisfy us, that which we cannot find any other place. John 6 then says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that gives life, that allows us to not die. And it is found in and through Jesus. And it is a bread that he is giving himself over his death for the life of the world. The best news ever. And then Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So God shows love. Not to those who are loving him, but to those who are sinners, to those who are rebelling against him, God is showing love to them. And in that he is, in his death, he is providing that which will make us right. It says here, that which will justify us through his blood. There's no other way for us to be right. You can't leave here today and perform a bunch of religious activities and make yourself right. We are made right by Jesus' blood. We are saved by him to himself, not just to something great, but we're saved from the wrath of God. The gospel is the sweetest, the best news in the world, but it also has bitter aspects as well. John 16, says, in the world, you will have tribulation. This world is filled with gut-wrenching trouble, harsh. This is our reality. And, and if we don't feel this, we just haven't lived long enough. It will come. It will happen. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In order for us to marry our lives to Jesus, there will be people who will snicker at us. There will be people who will want to socially ostracize us. And for many people throughout history, they have been killed because of their faith in Jesus. But notice this says all will be persecuted. There's no exceptions. To cling to Jesus, to be committed to him, to trust in Jesus means you will feel that at some point in your life. Luke 9.23, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I have never found the person who loves denying themselves. It's not easy. It's not easy to die to ourselves. This is part of the bitterness of the gospel call. Now, the gospel has both bitter and sweet aspects. What we need to also understand is that 
there are people who will emphasize just one or the other of these aspects. There are some who want to focus solely on the sweet side. Some of you may know this as prosperity theology. And so the idea being God just wants you to be healthy and happy and rich. And if that's not your reality, then it's probably a lack in your faith. So you, you just need to bolster your faith. You need to believe better, believe more. That's what some people say it is. There are others who want to preach just the law and lay burdens on others. They want to heap up a laundry list of rules thinking that that's the key to attaining the sweet aspects of the gospel. The reality is the gospel is a word that is both sweet and bitter. Okay, so this is, this is the word, the gospel that John is eating. What does he then do with it after ingesting it? Well, one thing we read here in verse 11 is it says, you must again prophesy. So the idea is he needs to go and proclaim it. So he's recording it. He's writing this down, but then he's also told to proclaim it. And this is why it's so important. The ingesting piece is so important because you cannot share, you won't share something you have not ingested, you have not believed yourself. This is why we must first believe. Sharing though, once we ingest it and believe it, when we truly understand the gospel, the only natural response is to share it. That's what we do with good news. The sweetness of the gospel is far better. It's far lasting than the bitterness of it. Now, in acknowledgement of the bitterness of the gospel, even the proclamation of it can be bitter. That can be hard. So Ezekiel, I referenced Ezekiel earlier as one who was told to eat the scroll. So he was told by God to eat the scroll to pro and then to go and proclaim God's word to Israel. This is also what God told him. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. It is a bitter experience to have people reject the gospel. And, and for many of us, for us to even get to the point of sharing the gospel with someone else has been a huge ordeal. And then to have someone, for us to put ourselves out there and have someone say, nah, I'm good. I don't need that. You keep your crutch is a bitter experience. It is an experience that many pastors are very familiar with. I personally have experienced people sitting under gospel preaching for years and leave the church by saying things like this. This is an, this is an exact quote, but many other flavors. I don't need to serve. I need to be served, which is almost a complete opposite of what Jesus said. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Gospel proclamation will feel 
at times like spitting in the wind. This is, this is why pastors are encouraged oftentimes to work with their hands. Find a hobby, find an activity you can do that you can work with your hands. Go mow the lawn, because then you can see, ah, I just did something. It allows us to see something we've accomplished in an immediate sense. The reality is change through the gospel is oftentimes slow. It's oftentimes arduous. But the gospel is this good. It is worth enduring through anything. I remember when we were planting Center Church, we had three kids, almost four. I had a stable job. And I remember people asking, like, what, what are you doing? Like, you're putting your family at risk. And I, I was just at this point where God had so gotten hold of me that I've, I'd seen the beauty of the gospel, a beauty I need to be reminded of over and over, just as much as any of you. But I wanted others to know, to see, to hear. And I wanted to give my life to proclaiming this sweet news. This wasn't some great noble thing I was doing. Jesus had grabbed hold of me. And I want Jesus to grab hold of others. Because I believe with everything in me that this is the sweetest news in the world. So the biblical trajectory that we see is believe and proclaim. Believe the gospel and then proclaim. But if we are honest with ourselves, we struggle to proclaim. We do struggle to proclaim. So the wrestle then for us is not just to white knuckle guilt ourselves. Okay, I got to go unhappily share this news with people. The questions that we need to ask ourselves, the wrestle that needs to happen goes towards our own hearts. Have we ingested the gospel? Have we really seen the beauty of it? Has it captivated us? Secondly, do you believe in Jesus like you believe in physical food? Do you believe you need Jesus today as much as much more than you need to eat lunch and you need to eat dinner today? You need Jesus far more than you need physical food in your stomach. Do you feast on Jesus? on the gospel regularly, daily? Do you keep going back to that well to be nourished? I know many of us would say and want to say we believe, but I think a lack of sharing Jesus with others might suggest otherwise. And so we've got to wrestle with this in our own hearts. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone not Christian. What I'm trying to do here is to ensure what the, the New Testament talks about is to ensure that we are in the faith. If we say this, if we say we're believing the gospel, then this is what gospel belief looks like. This is the implication of believing the gospel. We share it with others. 
if any of you guys want to talk about this at any point, I'd love to talk or pray with you regarding this today or another time. Okay, two points of gospel application here as we wind down. First of all, our lack of knowledge and certainty does not change God's goodness. This world is teeming with trouble. We, all of us, have lots of why questions. There's heartache. There's loneliness. There are many things I don't know, but there are plenty of things I do know. And one of them is this. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Even those things that we don't understand how they're working together for good. This says all things, not most things, not the things we can see how they're working together for good. This says all things for our good, even when it doesn't feel like it's for our good. There are many things we will not know in this life. God designed it this way so that we might trust in him. Not trust in our circumstances, not trust in fun experiences, but so that we might trust in him. Secondly, let the sweet parts of the gospel overwhelm and inform the bitter parts. I read a verse earlier, John 16, 33. I read part of the verse. Let me read the whole verse. I read just the middle section, but we've got to see the sandwich here. I have said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We oftentimes just focus in on the trouble part, the tribulation, and we think God is against me. Or, or that he's forgotten me. No, God's design is for you to be filled with peace, for you to know peace, for you to know that he has conquered everything and everyone, even in the midst of our trouble. Jesus has overcome the world. He will right the wrongs. He is the surest thing in the world. The bitter will not remain. It has an expiration date. The bitter will come to an end. In just a moment, for those of us who are here, you're going to have an opportunity while we're singing to take communion. And this is just kind of a reminder for us. When Jesus says, take and eat, when he says, come and follow, taking and eating is just a form of that we're reminding ourselves the, the bitterness of the wine reminds us of the bitterness of his death. He, he knows the bitterness that we walk through. He knows it better than we do. And it's a reminder we get to come and participate with him in that bitterness, as well as the sweetness that follows his resurrection and conquering overall.